Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 103 of the Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And we are so excited to be together today. Yes, we are. We actually got to be together in real life yesterday. It was incredibly exciting. Totally was. Masks and all, but it was still great to sit six feet apart and chat for a few minutes and see each other. Gosh, you're the first person I've had an extended conversation with other than Laura since, what, March 13th, I think? Uh, it's been a long, long slog. And, you know, it just makes you appreciate the simple things, yeah. you know, just sitting on the porch. We were here at my house, sitting on the porch, listening. The birds are going crazy these days and listening to the birds and just having a little catch up. Yeah. Very nice. And so here we are today back on Skype, which is great as well. We are thankful for the technology. Yeah. And the reason Chris stopped by was to give me a copy of Emma Viskich's book, Resurrection Bay, because, drum roll. (laughs) That's not exactly a drum roll. That was more of a a weak tongue roll, which I cannot do. But we are so excited to have Emma on as a guest At the end of this episode, we hope that you will definitely listen. She is an Australian mystery writer. Um, Her series is the... Caleb Zellick. He is an investigator who's deaf. And I think he's one of the most unique characters in uh, in the mystery scene these days. And his investigations, because he's deaf, are challenged in different ways. But he has opportunities in other ways. He's kind of a stubborn guy who doesn't always use resources available to him. And I just really find the the series just really fascinating and different. Yeah, it's really good. I'm enjoying it. So stay tuned uh, for Emma at the end of this episode. And then we also, people have been asking about our next read-along. In this episode, we're going to discuss our current read-along, Go Went Gone by Jenny Erpenbeck. We will announce the next read-along In June. Yeah. Yeah, we do a read-along once a quarter, so we'll announce the next book, as Emily just said, in June, and we'll probably have the discussion in August. And um, for those of you who listened to the last episode, you know that we did a a Zoom discussion for Go Went Gone, which was a lot of fun, and we really thank everybody who joined us for that. And uh, we think we're going to do that going into the future, because it was so neat to see people and talk with people directly about the book. Yeah, it was really, really nice. We have very smart listeners and readers out there. Absolutely. (laughs) It definitely made uh, the reading of the book much more robust for me to -hmm. get their feedback and have the conversation. Yeah, same here. But we will still have a conversation about the book too, for those of you who couldn't join us. So we don't want you to feel like you're completely missing out or anything like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're gonna share share the joy and the pleasure of that book. <laughs> so, Chris, what are you currently reading? Well, I was currently reading The Keep by Jennifer Egan. I had tried this book when it was uh, first coming out. I had an advanced reader copy from work, and I was drawn to it because it's about a keep, you know, an old castle tower in Eastern Europe, uh, and had you know Gothic themes and everything it's about these two cousins who had a falling out as children and they are reunited like 20 years later and the tables have turned as so often happens you know the cousin who was 
the weirdo quote loser as a kid is now wealthy and doing extremely well. And the other guy who struggled with being friends with the weirdo as a child is now the kind of guy who's down on his luck. And, you know, I I tried it again because I saw an interview with Jennifer Egan and I really want to like her books. I DNF'd Manhattan Beach too, I think last Mm. year, because her topics just seem like things that I should completely gravitate towards. But her books just leave me feeling, what's the point? So I downloaded a copy of the ebook from the New York Public Library and I got to the 43% mark and I just decided, you know what? I just really don't care. Hmm. So I, I'm DNFing it. All right. I think that's about where how far you got in Manhattan Beach also. Was it? Okay. If memory serves. I know yeah. the only book, well, let's see. I've read uh, A Visit from the Goon Squad, which I enjoyed. I mean, it was hard for me to keep track of because it goes in all manner of different directions and the characters are all intertwined. But mm-hmm. I'm not sure that I've read anything else by her. Well, yeah. So I just thought, you know, I, I really don't care about the characters or what's going on. Um, and there are just so many other books, obviously, out there. Yeah, so that is for sure. <laughs> I thought if I'm dragging my heels again, it's, it's just time to let it go. But, yeah. you know, yeah. so that was The Keep by Jennifer Egan. Well, I'm reading Resurrection Bay by Emma Viskich. I'm loving it. Chris dropped it off, I want to say, late afternoon yesterday. And I stayed up late reading it. And then even this morning I got up and it was one of those like, just one more chapter. Read one more chapter and then you can start your day. (laughs) That's great. Well, I have the second one and the third one if you want to read the whole thing. Yes, I think (laughs) I will want to keep going. Cool. So what have you just read? Oh, I'm st- I'm reading something else. Oh too. yeah. Oh gosh. Sorry. You know what? I am too. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> My little squirrel brain is going all over the place today. I'm reading Friends and Strangers by J. Courtney Sullivan. This book is not out until June 30th, um, but she has a huge backlist, and their books. She's one of those authors that as soon as I know she's got a book coming out, I just do a little happy dance. I've read her book Maine. Saints for All Occasions, and The Engagements. And then I think she has one other, The Commencement, that's her debut that I never read, which I noticed as I was looking up her other books, so I might go back and read that. She just tells a good story. She's a fantastic writer. And this book is about, um, it takes place from two points of view. One is a a 30-something-year-old mother who has a newish baby in the like nine months old or so. And she and her husband have moved from Brooklyn out into upstate New York, I believe. And she hires a babysitter because she's a writer on deadline for a book and she's not getting any writing done. So she hires a young woman from the local liberal arts college to babysit for her a few days a week. So it goes back and forth in time from their different perspectives. And I'm enjoying it so far. I'm not very deep into it. So more to report next episode. Great. And again, that's called Friends and Strangers by J. Courtney Sullivan. And that's out on June 30th. Well, I'm reading The Sun and the Moon by Matthew Goodman. I mentioned this last time as one that I would probably be starting, I think. And I'm really enjoying it. I'm just up to chapter five. I, I had to put it to the side uh, to read Go Went Gone, our read-along book. But I'm really enjoying it. It's about 1830s New York City. 
imagine that. It's just like a little bit over 50 years after the American Revolution in New York is just starting to explode. And already, you know, it's a place where people are coming from all over the world. And the focus is on the Sun, which is this newspaper, and how, you know, how the editor, the owner got together and created this crazy story about the man in the moon. I won't go into great detail about that because I don't know that much yet about it, but there are so many different characters in it, like uh, P.T. Barnum. You know, this is when he's starting with his curiosities of, you know, human beings and everything. And so it's almost like they're discovering at this point that shock value sells newspapers. You know, Mm. because newspapers prior to the 1830s had been things that men read in their gentlemen's clubs. It Smoking a, a cigar yes, or a pipe. You know, it was something <laughs> about that. And it was usually, you know, economics and, and things like that. And in the 1830s in New York, one of the new things that started is sending a reporter to cover the courts in the crime beat, which was something that was considered uncouth in a lot of ways. Um, mm. And also The Sun was, I, I'm not sure if it was the first newspaper to do this, but it was among the first, I suppose, who had newspaper boys. This is when they started going to the corners and, you know, hawking the papers to the general public as well. Because before, newspapers was a gentleman's game. And so, you know, gentlemen don't do things like that. Mm. It's not like they're selling soap after all, you know? Right. Um, so you just have this really great vibe of New York City in the 1830s. And what's going on with the newspaper world. And some of the people who are in the book or who make, you know, they're on the periphery of things is like Sojourner Truth, who was actually a housekeeper slash maybe more for this guy who started a religious cult in New York where somebody ended up murdered and she was implicated in it. Wow. Yeah. Like, it's wow, that's a storyline or a bit of her life I'd never heard about. So she was actually... Uh, implicated in poisoning this man who died. So I'm looking forward to getting back into that. The Sun and the Moon, Matthew Goodman. It is some really neat historical look at New York City, which, you know, I miss greatly. Yes, as do I. And a reminder, you know, Matthew's been on the podcast. He writes narrative nonfiction, historical narrative nonfiction, I should say. um, And also lives in New York, is a proud New Yorker. Right. I'm sure that book is dusted with a little bit of his New York love. Oh, definitely. (laughs) I mean, it is definitely. And it's a good look at American culture, too, in the early 19th century and and what was going on and what people were interested in, what the extreme poverty so many people were living in. Because these newspaper boys, they kind of have the stereotype of being, you know, poor kids, but with a heart of gold, you know, kind of like the prostitutes stereotype. And, you know, these kids were homeless they had nothing you know they slept on top of each other to keep warm and it's really it's i'm glad i live when i am living because to live in the 1830s i don't think it would have been very pleasant yeah yeah Yeah. different challenges yeah so i'm reading one more i i'm listening to one more how about you no, no okay. other ones. Do tell. So this other one I'm listening to, it's an audiobook called A Biography of Loneliness, The History of an Emotion. It's by Faye Bound Alberti. 
and it's read by Henrietta Meir. And, you know, I downloaded it because I thought it was going to be a more of a philosophical look at the issue of loneliness because I'm really interested in how people, some people are able to turn loneliness into a sense of solitude, which is I, I see as a more something that people desire, you know, the desire mm-hmm. to be alone. That's a good thing versus it becoming isolation. I was surprised that so much of it is a, a look at literature. She's a British writer. The British government is actually looking at loneliness as an economic problem. Is how they're yeah, seeing it. Yeah, there's been some articles about that that I've come across. Yeah. 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 So they are doing a lot of research on the situation. And um, Alberti is somebody who's always enjoyed solitude. She grew up in Wales and loved being alone and isolated in the country where they lived. So she's kind of looking at it a little bit philosophically, but then all of a sudden, boom, we're into this chapter on Sylvia Plath, which surprised Mm me. Um, So talking about loneliness and mental health in her case. And now I'm on a chapter about, of all things, the Twilight series and Wuthering Heights and talking about the issue of having a soulmate and how that has created, since the 19th century, this sense of loneliness for longing for an idealized other as a soulmate and just the complications of that in terms of loneliness. This might go down in history as the only time Wuthering Heights and Twilight were mentioned in the same sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, they're both really twisted stories. Like, I I mean, I I read Wuthering Heights as an adult and I thought, this is messed up. Like, what a messed up, abusive story. And if people think this is romance, they have a real twisted idea of what romance is. And, and I only read the first entry into the Twilight series just to kind of see what the hubblebub was about. And I do like vampire stuff, but I don't like pretty vampires. So I didn't go on with the series. But um, apparently it is very much like Wuthering Heights in terms of having that brooding male character and the female character who will put up with abuse because this is her man and her soulmate. So, yeah, it's interesting. I'm not listening to it with pen in hand to take notes, but I'm fascinated by these different types of psychological states that we have so many assumptions about. You know, she mentions nostalgia, and most people think of nostalgia as kind of a sad thing when it can actually be a quite positive emotion for a lot of people or emotional state, I should say for a lot of people. And so that's really interesting. And I, I might actually end up getting a hard cover or a hard copy of this. So I can look at it in a little bit more detail and look at the references and things like that. So again, that's a biography of loneliness, the history of an emotion by Faye bound Alberti. Great. Well, what did you just read? The only thing I've just read is our read-along book. And I know we're going to talk about that later. How about you? You've gotten some things under your belt, I think. I have. Yeah, I finished Relish, My Life in the Kitchen by Lucy Nisley, whose name I think I completely butchered (laughs) the last time that we (laughs) 
talked about this book. So um, it's spelled K-N-I-S-L-E-Y, but the K is silent. And this was a great book. It's um, She's a graphic novelist. She's a cartoonist by trade. You know, I've never been great at reading the graphic novel because I spend too much time paying attention to the words and not looking at the pictures. And then this was definitely the first time I've read one on my iPad. So that was a completely different experience. But I really forced myself. I still read the words first. And then I forced myself to go back and, you know, like, stop before you turn to the next page and look at the the art. And the art was beautiful. And it's an exploration of her life via food. She was raised by parents. Her mother was a chef and her father was you know, a gourmand of sorts who just appreciated really good food. And before her teenage years, she her parents divorced and she and her mother moved to upstate New York. Right when kind of the, you know, farm to table movement was starting and farmers markets were getting hot and her mother started a catering business. And Lucy, you know, went to all these catering jobs with her and met all of these people who ended up to kind of, kind of being the movers and the shakers in this industry, not to mention that, you know, there's artists and those types who come up from the city and were at these parties that she was catering. And she fell in love with art. And um, one of the scenes in the book is she's at this great um, museum of art up in upstate with famous sculptures and things like that. And she's wandering around in her little catering uniform, you know, (laughs) looking at the art. And she ends up going to art school. So it just kind of traces her her life. And at the end of each chapter, she has a fun recipe, like a family recipe. And it's it's not the classic recipe of, you know, where it's just written out one cup of whatever. Mm-hmm. It's all in pictures. And it, they were really beautiful. So That's I really cool. liked that part. Yeah. And um, so is that in color or is it a black and white? It was in color. color. Nice. It was really beautifully done. And I highly recommend it just as a really fun change, especially if you like to read food memoirs of any kind. It was great. And I then I went to her website and she's, she's written also um, a lot of parenting type of memoir. And, um, you know, just she's a cartoonist. She does really fun cartoons. And I imagine she's really fun to follow on social media. I have not done that. Mm-hmm. But... So again, the book was called Relish, My Life in the Kitchen by Lucy Nisley. And then I also read Redhead by the Side of the Road by Ann Tyler. That's a great This title. is her newest book. Yeah. I love an Ann Tyler book. I feel like when you pick up an Ann Tyler book, you just know you're going to be in good hands. She's incredibly prolific. If you've never read her, I highly recommend you dig in. I don't even have a particular book that I recommend you start with. I just say, go for it, you know? Yeah. This one's very short, though. It was just around 200 pages, I think. And the main character is Micah Mortimer, and he's... A single guy who lives in a basement apartment. He helps care for the apartment building he lives in. He's also the tech hermit where he does computer and IT support for folks, you know, just on his own. So he goes out to his car, puts his little tech hermit tag on the top of his car and goes out to these jobs. And he's a little socially challenged and doesn't always understand the world that he's entering into, particularly with his gal pal, 
<laughs> so um, there's some scenes about that. And that's what I feel like Ann Tyler does really well. She just gets you inserted into somebody's life. You know, she's very good at, at character development and the cast of characters around someone. And very good, I feel like, at building almost a sense of family you know, like a group of friends that become family-like but aren't family of origin. That's one of the things I would say is a classic feature of her books. And so Micah is very regimented in his life. And, you know, Monday's vacuuming day, Tuesday's laundry day, you know, that sort of thing. He has his life in order. <laughs> I need more he of that. A, yeah. <laughs> he gets a knock on the door and it's a young man who thinks that Micah is his father. So that kind of shakes up his life a little bit, as you might imagine. Yeah. I will not spoil anything. I will just say that the book doesn't go in the direction that you think it might go. Okay. That's the only little clue I'm going to drop. I will also say that the first few pages, she has such an incredible way of writing sparingly using semicolons to describe <laughs> This character that I was just like knocked off my socks. I had to read it twice. I just, her, she's an amazing writer. Highly recommend this book, Redhead by the Side of the Road, Ann Tyler. And then the other book I read is called Three Fifths, which is such a funny name, I think, but by John Vircher. I think I understand the, the title, but I'm not sure. But anyway, I'm not going to go into that. But this book is published by Polis Books, which is the publisher of Ain't Nobody Nobody, our friend Heather Harper Ellett. But this is a new imprint that started in 2019 under Polis that focuses on diverse voices in crime fiction. And John was in the, um, listen to me talking to him like he's my best friend. John <laughs> was in the first group of books that was published under this imprint. The main character is a biracial black man named Bobby, and he's passing as a white man. Mm -hmm. And his mother is white and his paternal grandfather, who he was raised with to a certain age, was a retired police officer, very racist retired police officer. So Bobby never really got in touch with his African-American roots and almost, not almost, did have racist tendencies of his own. And so the book is about his relationship with his best friend, Aaron, who's just the book starts where Aaron's just been released from prison. And as Bobby is driving him away from prison, they get out to get something to eat and Aaron commits a crime immediately. Oh. That makes Bobby an accomplice, right? God. Yeah. And then the book goes on from there. I really enjoyed it. This, too, was a very short book, but it packed a punch. Where is that one set? It's set, you know, that's funny you should say that. I think it was Pittsburgh. It might have been Philadelphia. Okay. If he was very clear about that, I missed it. But it was definitely in a city with a lot of snow. Okay. <laughs> Just curious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he, I know that... Um, the author lives in Philly, so that I think maybe it was Philly. I was a little unclear about that. One of the things that's going on in the backdrop, because he's really, the whole book is about confronting racism. And the OJ trial is happening mm -hmm. in the background, which is really interesting. And also, you know, talking about gang violence and um, things like that. So 
it really made me think about a lot of things about race Mm -hmm. as I read this book. And this is his debut. So I'm curious to see what else he does. I know he's got some essays out and things like that. Highly recommend. Again, this is Three Fifths by John Vircher. And then the only other book I read was Go Went Gone. So shall we dig into our conversation about that? Yeah, let's do it. Go Went Gone, Jenny Urbanback. It was translated by Susan Bernofsky, we should say. I think it's always important because I think translators do create as they're translating. It's it's not just some straightforward sentence-by-sentence translation, but they're bringing it to life, bringing the story to life in a different language where there are different associations. So very much it can be almost a different book for some so for some readers. That's why I wish I could read in another language just to do more comparisons like that to understand how things are translated. Because it's always curious to me when people say, oh, it was translated so well, such a good yeah. translation. It's like, well, how do you really know if you don't read the original language? Yeah, and I mean, especially this one is so much about Germany. You know, it's a, well, maybe we should give a quick summary of what it's about. All right. Which I always feel like you're so much better (laughs) at than me, Chris, but I will fill in the gaps. So super quick, (laughs) it's about this white man, I'm assuming he's white, retired classics professor who is originally from East Germany. He was a war baby, so when he was born, there were... There was one Germany, but then divided into East and West Germany. He grew up in East Germany, the socialist, communist side of the country. And as he's an adult, the countries are reunited and it's one Germany again. So he's a refugee himself in some ways, multiple times, coping with different transitions that are foisted upon him. But he's lived a really kind of just focused life he is that professor this is what he does he's married his wife is the one who takes care of everything at one point he has a mistress and he's retired his wife has passed away he's living alone you get the sense that he's going to be up for a lot of boredom in his life the most interesting thing is that there is a dead man who drowned in the lake behind his house earlier that summer The body's never been recovered. So that's a a mystery that goes throughout the novel that there's this dead man who's never been recovered. And one of the things that captures this man is the plight of refugees from Africa who are in a park in Berlin. They've set up tents and, and that's where they're living now for going on three years, I think. So it's been a long time. He never heard about them, really. He starts becoming interested in them in a very detached way. He does not want to get involved. He just wants to observe. But before he knows it, he's due to the questions he's asking, he, there he is interviewing them and talking and getting to know their lives a little bit more, coming to understand that they're coming from all different countries in Africa and later than some countries from the Middle East as well. And so it's about these refugees as well and what they're going through in Germany as Germany decides what to do with them because they all originally, well, not all, but many of them originally came from Italy. And there's this European agreement that whatever country a refugee lands in, that's the country where they can work. 
they could get a work visa, I guess. But the problem in Italy, it, you know, Mediterranean country, that's where they landed on the boats that they used to escape whatever they were fleeing from, there's no work for them in Italy. So that's why so many of them come to Germany looking for work. But they're not allowed to work in Germany for a variety of reasons. And so that's kind of the gist of the novel. Was that decent? That was fantastic. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and I would only add that not only does he become interested in their lives, but he also kind of starts to bring them into his life, which is a natural progression, I suppose, that occurs. Um, and he just didn't, you know, he didn't really notice what was happening at all. And so there's a, you get the sense that not only is he awakening to their lives, but in a certain way, he's awakening to his life because now he has, you know, he's not just focusing on his, the life of his academic mind, you know, yeah, he starts to, you know, question things about his own life and his relationship with his wife and things like that as, as he is awakened to kind of opening his eyes to the world around him, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And the, the comfort that he does have and, he it's very much a novel about uh, money and economics and history and and how so many of us have prosperity that we're not you know we can't attribute it to ourselves we are just Mm. born into having this prosperity or in the case of the east germans the wall fell and they'd been living in not in the best circumstance uh but the west has had tons of money so all this money comes pouring into the east And one of the quotes that I really liked, it's on page 72, for those of you who have the book, he's walking around his own town and he sees just a vacant lot where there used to be this lovely villa, an old villa that was there. And um, this is the quote, he says, there's no better way to make history disappear than to unleash money. Money roaming free has a worse bite than an attack dog. It can effortlessly bite an entire building out of existence, Richard thinks. And that's the protagonist's name, Richard. So I just really love that. I, I, I don't love it. I appreciate that sentiment of how money does make history disappear. And we see that in our own country. This is talking specifically about buildings. But I think when you eradicate the physical monuments or places where histor- historical things happened you do erase it from human memory as well. Yeah, that's such a fantastic point, Chris. Yeah, it's there's so much in this book. Wow, I'm trying to think about, you know, like, I mean, the other thing that you definitely get the sense of with Richard's awakening is his trying to understand bureaucracy. And, you know, I would imagine in a socialist country, there's, there's a lot of bureaucracy, but you're not really a part of it, right? I mean, it's just, it, you're just part of the system. And now these refugees have become part of a bureaucracy, which doesn't make sense, you know, like they just want to work and they can't work. So then what do the uh, the people of Germany think? They think these people are just lazy and just coming here to eat their food and take up space, you know? Well, that's the thing. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, I mean, so many of them don't speak the language. So what work can they do mm-hmm. in some ways? Um, and... <laughs> That one of the parts of the book I really like is the newspaper coverage, because here these guys and it is guys in in this 
certain settlement, they're presented as if they the first thing they do is come to Germany and pee off of a roof when it's one guy who did that and they've been there for three years. But that's right. the perception, like how the media perceives or how the media presents what they present to the public. So the public is getting this view of their the refugee situation that is right. simplified, erroneous, full of assumptions. And really, uh, the, one of the ta sections I tabbed about that, quite homophobic as well, because mm -hmm. one of the things, um, can I go into that? Or am I sure? Okay. So this scene was on page 221. And I, as a gay person, am always, you know, my antennas go up anytime gay stuff is mentioned in a book. And, you know, this is for the whole book. It's all been assumingly kind of from a heterosexual perspective, right? He's, Richard is married. He had a, a woman lover on the side for a while. And so when the, he's talking about reading the German newspaper and this, I'm not sure which paper he's talking about, but it's the biggest newspaper in Germany. It is the one that is helping to establish the new, as he says, the ideological voice of new Germany as it were, is what this says. And it's describing the lives and the activities of the sympathizers. So the Germans who are supporting the refugees, it's talking about them just, you know, establishing solidarity camps in front of the buildings. Let me just read this. So, and this is when the men, they've been moved from the tents to this, a nursing home for a while. And now they've been moved to another place in a building. And so I'm just going to read this quote. The men atop this wintry roof, the article asserts, are basically just the victims of the sympathizers. So here the refugees are victims of the German sympathizers. They're being used as tools to serve others' political goals. But unfortunately, they lack the intelligence and perspective to realize this. Richard remembers the young man with the poster he saw at the demonstration. And the poster read... Long live the gays and lesbians of Kenya. So that was mm. the slogan. It's true. Richard, sitting at breakfast, like other readers of this major German newspaper, in a warm house, toast, tea, orange juice, honey, and cheese before him, Richard truly does see a bleak future lo looming for Germany should this supporter, helped by refugees who out of youthful exuberance and political blindness, are standing on the roof and peeing, success in staging a coup that lands him in the chancellor's seat. So a bleak future if the gays and lesbians are allowed to live long. I just put what next to this question mark because mm -hmm. it's like this is the only time gays and lesbians are mentioned and Richard is looking at it as this would be a bleak outcome for Germany. Hmm. I'm not sure if I read it the same way. How do you read I, it? I, I'd have to read it. But I mean, I think that there was another part in the book where, you know, people fled their country because of homophobia. Right. So that's not I was I was reading that as it's a bleak. It's just a bleak future for the refugees in general. Not that it was bleak for Germany that, you know, there would be gays and lesbians. Is that what you're saying? Oh, no, it said? says Richard truly does see a, a bleak future looming for Germany should this supporter helped by refugees 
succeed in staging a coup that lands him in the chancellor's seat. So he's saying that this gay supporter is help, you know, that it's, it would be a bleak future. Hmm. So I, you know, it is, it's a curious, it's a curious passage because yeah. the first time I read, I just was like, what? But then every time I go back to it and look at my tabs and think about the book, because I have to say, while I was reading this book, I really had a hard time with it at points. Not a hard time, but I was kind of a little bit like, okay, let's go. Um, but yeah. the more I think about it and the more I look back at it, I'm fascinated by it. And I, I think one of the things that I glossed over was just how boring Richard is. Mm-hmm. Like, he is a boring, bland man. And, like, he's more into his comfortable loafers than, right. you know, much of anything else initially. And I think you kind of gloss over with that blandness. And I wonder mm. a, about Erpenbeck's mm. intention, if she did that purposefully... Because that's how so many white Europeans slash Westerners are in their life. Yeah. You know, just kind of plodding along, doing what they always do, not thinking about the prosperity that they do have that most of them haven't necessarily earned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and just going along. So, yeah, anyway, I just really thought that passage was curious and it, it gave me a lot of pause about Richard being potentially homophobic as well because then at the there's that end scene where they're having that party that gathering and it's all about the men's wives Mm, so it's all it's like just kind of like reinforcing that heteronormative perspective of this is what this is what men need and miss yeah huh Well, you know, two of the people who dialed into our virtual book club, and thank you to everyone who participated in that. It was so much fun. Finished the book and turned back to the front page and read it again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as difficult as this book was for me, because I too found it quite plodding. And one of our listeners and um, participants in the book club, Emily, said that it was very contemplative. And I thought that was a very good way of describing the writing style. I mean, it really was. And I mean, I kept making a joke of like, okay, Richard, we get it. You have comfy brown shoes because so many scenes, it's like he's lacing up his comfy brown shoes to go outside. Um, But I mean, I can see that if you were to reread it, even when I've reread passages to prepare for our discuss read along discussion you know our virtual read along discussion in this today it's like oh I didn't I need to think about that again you Mm -hmm. know I mean I didn't think about it that way or we have a great very active Goodreads discussion on this on our Goodreads group page if folks want to check it out and our buddy Robin posted an interview with Jenny Erpenbeck and Claire Masood and it really gave a lot of insight into why she wrote this book you know, that made me kind of want to go back and read it again after, you know, listening to the interviews. So there, there's a lot to uncover here. But I mean, I found Richard to be quite, I don't know that I would have thought of the word boring. I have to think about that. But I found him to be so out of touch, you know, (laughs) and our, our, our buddy Kate wrote, she, she wrote, sent us this great email of where she was reflecting on an experience she had. She works in the medical field with a young resident who had done nothing but like leave his parents home to go to college, then to become a resident. And 
you know, he might be really smart and understand a lot about medicine, but he didn't even know how to make himself a cup of tea, mm-hmm. you know, and I told her, I, I know so many people who have PhDs and are brilliant, but they don't necessarily have much common sense, you know, and Richard strikes me as someone like that. And it's almost like he's now realizing now that his wife who did take care of everything, you know, like that there's a big old world out there. And, you know, there are these people who don't, as you're pointing out, come from much of anything, you know, and having to try to make their way in a world that's filled with bureaucracy that's set up to work against them, you know? Well, yeah, certainly not to help them. Yeah. You know, because I think, you know, that well, yeah, to work against them, maybe. I mean, one of the lines that I really appreciated from this novel is that they're defending peace so aggressively that it looks like war, Mm. you know, and it's just... How do you deal with refugees potentially swamping your country? You know, because I know, like, with the thing with law, there's so much about law. And there is a wonderful, I mean, you think of Kafka, you know, who wrote so much about being ensnared by law and legal things that you don't even know. Like, nobody knows because it's so detached that there's no emotion left you think like his novel the trial and there's Erpenbeck kind of leaning towards that because there is a scene where Richard drives one of the refugees to a lawyer's office and it is I think that's the line too where it's like these refugees were some of them drowned in trying to get to Europe they drowned as boats turned over and everything and now they're drowning in a sea of paperwork which is the bureaucracy bureaucracy and and the the point being made that law has become so divorced from the emotional life of even most everyday Germans that it's certainly completely devoid of emotion for these refugees you know mm-hmm. and the law is all about precedent so like if mm-hmm. they do one thing for this one group then the argument would be why not do it for other groups and other groups and other groups and other groups. And I think that's the fear that so many people who are living in a prosperous way fear it being taken away from them because they see the great need that so many people have. And it's, it's frightening. Yeah. Yeah. It's frightening and and frustrating. Yeah. And then there's the racism or the homophobia and the sexism and the religious differences that, scare people as well mm-hmm. right yeah and I think that the other thing that's important and I'm changing the subject a little bit here but to remember too is that in a lot of cases the refugees don't want to be there either mm-hmm. they'd rather be back home with their families right. you know yeah. and they're trying to figure that out and so to have some sensitivity around that as well yeah and um, that's where a lot of the frustration lies for them yeah. You know, not only are they trying to navigate a system that's not working well in a language that they don't understand, but they have a whole other life somewhere else that they'd like to be engaging in. Yeah. If it weren't for war or for famine or whatever the Drug problems dealers. are. Yeah. yeah. It's a it's a complicated issue. And I think that's, you know, she's trying to just give us a little taste of of it but i think it's very interesting that she chose for it to be from this perspective mm-hmm. you know i would love to ask her a few questions but sadly <laughs> we don't have that the chance <laughs> no but you know he is so delusional one of the scenes that made me chuckle chuckle i hate that word chuckle dan brown uses that word all the time in his books chuckle <laughs> 
it makes me crazy. So I didn't exactly, uh, maybe I did chuckle, who knows, maybe I'm lightening up in my old age, but um, <laughs> when he's talking with one of his old friends, Sylvia, I think it is, they'd had sex way back when they were younger and a couple trysts, and he's they're talking and he says at one point, like, gosh, you know, why didn't we ever get together? And she just laughs and hangs up. Right. <laughs> and I, know, I thought, I Richard, that. you're so clueless, you know? <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, I forgot about that. That's hilarious. Yeah. But, you know, so in the end, he does, as Emily said, like, he opens up his home and his friends. Because his friends he's been talking with about the situation. And so many of them didn't know about it either. And, you know, Berlin's a big city, so you don't really know what's going on until something gets covered in the news. And then depending on how it gets covered in the news, you care or you don't care. And they start to care because Richard cares because he's having one-on-one conversations with these people. And it's wonderful that they open up and help as well. Um, But there is that couple that are dismissive of Richard's interests and kind of make bad jokes about the refugees no one even thinks to ask them to help (laughs) and I thought that's interesting because it's almost like you have this community of friends that are becoming almost like family in some ways but these this two that and again I'm assuming they're white but they are the ones who are now isolated and alone Mm. because they're no longer part of the group that's doing something together which I yeah. thought was an interesting thing and something that I didn't really think about until I've been thinking about this book now a week after having finished it and having lots of conversations. And I still haven't done any research about the book and reading reviews because it's just been kind of nice to ponder it and think about it. Yeah. Well, maybe you'll do that and have some other new insights, Yeah. you know, know. moving forward. Because I did, I read... I'm not sure I read James Wood. There's a big review from James Wood in who's Claire Massoud's husband in the New Yorker. So I'll I'll link to that in the show notes. And I'll also link to the interview with Claire Massoud and Jenny Erpenbeck as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this book so much. I'm so glad that we picked it. Yeah. And even though it was, you know, if you haven't read it yet and you want to give it a try and you're reading and you're finding it a little boring, I would say stick with it. Yeah. Because it is rewarding in the end. Well, actually, when I turned the last page, my first thought was like, well, good thing. That's over, you know. Um, (laughs) But then I immediately immediately started, you know, flipping back through my tabs and thinking about things. And then and um, I knew we'd be talking about it and in having our our Zoom discussion with listeners, which was great. So sometimes. I think when a book is hard to read, it makes the best discussion book. I agree. Because people have so many different takes on things. Yeah. And they understand things in different ways that you just don't have a handle on or you glossed over and you didn't even think anything about it. And then somebody says something about that scene and you're like, oh, my God, wow, that completely changes the way I understand the character or the novel. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, so thank you to everybody who's been contributing on the Goodreads page and to the people who were on our read-along discussion. It really did, like like I said, um, made the reading of this book much more robust of an experience for me and gave me even more to think about. So yeah. again, in case anyone forgot, it was Go Wink Gone <laughs> by Jenny Erpenbeck. On to our Biblio adventures. Yes. Well, the first one I had was our Book Cookers virtual read-along discussion, which was really fun. The first time we've done that. For me to say a Zoom discussion was fun <laughs> is saying a lot right now because I'm very over-Zoomed these days. Yes. <laughs> but that was my kind of Zoom meeting. <laughs> yeah, that was really, it was so true. Like, I've not been on even a tiny fraction of the amount of Zoom meetings you've been on. Um, I listeners, I have to say, like, sometimes when I've talked with Emily, like her eyes actually look like they're cartoon character eyes that are twirling <laughs> from watching so much video. Um, but that was a really fun discussion. And we had no idea how it would go. But it, I thought it went really well. And people were very thoughtful about others comments. And I, I guess one of the things I was worried about was people talking over each other. But there didn't seem to be a lot of uh, video lag time or anything. So that was good. Yeah, it was great. And, you know, not we don't want anyone to feel left out. If you're interested in knowing if we're going to do a future uh, virtual read-along, please join our newsletter. Mm -hmm. Subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on our website, bookcougars.com, because we did send out a newsletter uh, announcement about that. Or I should say we sent out an announcement to our subscribers. And I think we did also mention it on the podcast, but there wasn't much time before yeah. when we mentioned it and when we had it. So We always um, announce our read-along titles to the newsletter folks first and, and special things like that. So join us there. We only send usually one email a month. It's not like we're going to inundate your inbox. Right, no, because we're always shocked that another calendar page has turned. It's like, oh my gosh, we got to do the newsletter. <laughs> So I also attended one event. It was on Zoom. It was a Zoom event with RJ Julia Bookseller here in Madison. And it was moderated by our buddy Emily. And it was The Book of V by Anna Solomon. I didn't know anything about this book, but I happened to run into Emily. And she was just so enthusiastic about it. And we have very similar reading taste. So just a quick little thing about what the book's about and this is just really uh, something I wrote down after reading about it because I haven't read it yet it's a kaleidoscopic novel that intertwines the lives of three women a Brooklyn mother current day 2016 a senator's wife in 1970s DC mm. and the Bible's Queen Esther wow yeah and she was so interesting to listen to and it really, really made me want to read the book. And I have it on request from the library. But I think it got picked for someone's book club. So I think it's a little bit harder to come by. But okay. maybe they'll buy more copies because of that. But I have to say the one thing about Zoom that I find so distracting is if someone's sitting in front of a bookcase. <laughs> and she was sitting in front of the most beautiful bookcase I wanted to just say to her like could we just take a little break and you do just like a little <laughs> little pan, <quick> pan. <laughs> that's great but anyway it sounds like a great book um, and it's definitely getting some notice so you might want to look it up again it's called the book of V by Anna Solomon 
What about you? Did you do any adventuring? You know, I did too. One was a really short one. It was a Q&A with Jennifer Egan and Johnny Temple, who is the, I think he's the editor-in-chief or publisher of Akashic Books. Mm. And they, I was attracted to it uh, because I I do get their emails. Video focused on her love of (laughs) M-dashes. Oh, I love it. I love M dashes. How I do, do you too. feel about M dashes? I yeah. adore them. Yes. Me too. So, um, and then she mentioned the keep in that video. So I thought, okay, that's what led me to do the, the keep. I, I looked on um, New York Public Library and they had it available as an ebook. So that's what made me do that. And then the other Biblio adventure was just last night. The New York Public Library had an event with Stacy Schiff and Tim Gunn discussing her book Cleopatra that came out some years ago and it's a biography of Cleopatra it's one I've always wanted to read I've been a little bit on the fence about but I think it's definitely going to go back on my TBR and Tim Gunn is just a big fan of reading history and he's read Cleopatra twice so that was um, an interesting conversation Laura and I watched it last night you can you know how you can mirror your laptop or phone on a TV if you have a newer TV? We did that, and, and that was kind of nice. May 23rd is the 125th anniversary of the New York Public Library. Oh, wow. So this event was initially supposed to be a live event to celebrate their anniversary, but of course everything is shut down in New York um, at the library, which is unfortunate because, you know, they do such great events. And yeah. what an anniversary to have squelched. Yeah, that's too bad. I'm glad you got to hear that, though. I really, I've heard a couple of interviews with Tim yeah. Gunn. And um, he wrote a memoir that sounds really interesting. Also, I can't remember the name of it. But I, I imagine he was a good interviewer. Oh, yeah, he? totally. And yeah. He, um, he's yeah. also written a history of fashion book. And so they had a little crossover. They They both talked about having done their research at the New York Public Library and they had a little crossover talking about like what did Cleopatra wear and what the fashion was and just how crucial and important Alexandria was, you know, prior to the rise of the Roman Empire. And Tim Gunn said that tailors first started in Alexandria. That's when oh. tailors started oh. as a, I guess, a profession was oh, there with their fashion. Yeah. Oh, how fun. Yeah, That's it was really cool. good. Yeah. Do you have any upcoming Biblio adventures? I do. I have one I just signed up for with Roxanne Gay in conversation with Nicole Dennis Ben. Hmm. Um, this is about the paperback release of Dennis Ben's book Patsy, which has this really recognizable cover. Mm-hmm. that I've thought of, I've looked at and looked at but never really dug into it and this is through the Center for Fiction so I'll put a link in the show notes for that and it's on June 1st which oh. seems crazy that we're talking about June but that's not that far away not um, at I all think it's, I think it's um a week from Monday okay and this is part of I didn't know about this but maybe you did Chris the Center for Fiction has an inside and out pride 2020 event series Oh, okay and I'm going to quote here it says offers solace and affirmation to the LGBTQ plus community during a time of isolation from trusted social groups and support networks 
I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, and it is, Patsy explores gender, sexuality, and Jamaican life and the diaspora because I think it's about a woman who leaves her family behind in Jamaica to come to New York to make a life for herself. And I don't know if the, the point then is to bring her family to America. I'm not sure. I haven't um, read more deeply into it, but I'm I'm looking forward to these two in conversation. Yeah. Um to learn more about it. Sounds good. And speaking of Roxane Gay, I wanted to let listeners know our buddy Colleen, who's been on the podcast before, she's the one that reported on... Yeah, the American Writers Museum in Chicago when that first opened. She visited it and, and gave us a, a little bit of a verbal walkthrough. Yes, we lived vicariously. Um, she was on our virtual uh, read-along phone call, and she was telling us about that Roxanne Gay has offered a digital care package. It's free. They're on Dropbox. I'll put a link in the show notes. And Roxanne Gay has some essays that aren't easy to access anymore, I guess. And then she's um, written some comic books, and I think she has a couple of the first, you know, like two books in the series. She's also an avid cook. So she has some recipes and things like that. And it's a way you can literally send a care package to someone digitally. Because, you know, people are kind of hesitant to open things and get mail these days. And there's lots of other kinds of care packages available from all different manner of people. So if you go to this link, you can then browse from there. It's really fun. Very cool. So again, digital care packages, a new thing that's, I, as far as I know, popped up in this time. Very Thanks, cool. Colleen, for letting us know about that. Yeah, for sure. Oh, well, one of the Biblio adventures I'll be doing online coming up is the 65th annual Willa Cather Spring Conference, which is June 4th to 6th. This is something that is usually live and in person in Red Cloud, Nebraska. This is the first time they're taking it online for obvious reasons. And the theme is Untethered, Cather on the Cusp of the 1920s. And the book of focus is her 1920s short story collection, Youth and the Bright Medusa, which will be pretty cool because I've been doing um, this, the Willa Cather short story project on my blog. So... Anyone who's been reading along, we've read that collection, and it'll be kind of neat to sit in and on the panels. So it should be a really neat experience. It's only $100 for all three days. And if it's your first time attending, or if you're a student, there is a half price discount code. So you could do all three days for $50. So we'll oh, put the awesome. link for that in the show notes. So they're going to have panels and things like that, Chris? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Panels, uh, presentations. And uh, I, I walk through an art exhibit, I believe. And then there are some performance pieces. I know that there's a fundraiser, too, where they've turned some of the short stories into, like, old-time radio shows, I think. Oh, that's yeah. cool. So, um, and they're using a platform called Whova, I think it's called. I'd not heard of it, but it's W-H-O-V-A. And it is a conference platform to do online. So once you register, you get access to that. And you can connect with other participants. It has the calendar right there. So everything's right there on your phone or uh, tablet. 
You can also access it on a laptop or a desktop computer, but I, the app was made for phones and tablets. Good. So, yeah. Oh, you're going to be yeah. in some Cather heaven. For Absolutely. A yeah. If I <laughs> can't be there in person, this will be the next best thing for sure. Yeah. 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 Great. So any upcoming reads? Yes, I do have upcoming reads in there, Cather again. So I'm going to round out the episode with lots of Cather. Two wonderful Cather scholars in Nebraska uh, started this new program. It's called the Sandy Point Correspondence Club. And it is a pen pal book club for people who want to read some Willa Cather. They wanted to do this to help, you know, give people a sense of connection during this time of isolation. And they're kind of hoping in some ways to pair younger people with older people who may be isolated. So we'll put a link to information about the Sandy Point Correspondence Club. It's all done by handwriting letters. They don't want people communicating via email. You do sign up by sending somebody an email or um, I have a mailing address and they'll send you the name and address of your pen pal. Oh, how fun. Yeah, based on what books you want to read. Now, they're they're asking, they're encouraging people to choose from the novel O Pioneers, the short story A Wagner Matinee, or the poem Going Home, Burlington Route. So you can do a poem if you don't have a lot of time or you don't want to necessarily jump into a novel. But you can also, if there's something you've been burning to read, you can also suggest that and they'll try and match you up with somebody who wants to read that piece as well. And then you'll write back and forth is the idea and make a new friend via the U.S. Postal Service. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. I love it. So I signed up to read O Pioneers, which is the first novel that I ever read by Cather, and I love it so much. So I do have my pen pal, and I'll be reading that novel again and writing a letter. Aw, how yeah. fun. How about you? <laughs> I have um, a few books that I'm really hoping to dig into in the next two weeks. And uh, apologies in advance, none of them are out yet, but really, they're not that far away. And also, a reminder that you can pre-order books, and you can also request them from the library. Or sometimes, I know with both the library systems I use, you can actually get on waiting lists now if they have the book in the system. And if they don't have the book in the system, you can recommend it at least I can with the libraries that I use so one of them is called Memorial Drive a daughter's memoir this is by Natasha Trethaway and that one's out July 28th and I believe that has to do with something to do with a murder like one of her parents was murdered could be wrong but that's what I think it is and then a light read after that one, Dear Emmy Blue by Leah Louise. And this is out July 14th. The premise of this one is a, a young girl who puts a message in a balloon, kind of the idea of a message in a bottle, okay. lets the balloon go, and then falls madly in love with the, the young man who finds her message in the balloon. So that's all I know about that book. The third book is a nonfiction book called Big Friendship. How We Keep Each Other Close. This is out on July 14th. And this is by Aminatou Sao and Anne Friedman. And they are the co-hosts of the Call Your Girlfriend podcast. Oh, okay. 
And it's getting a lot of press because it's about a female friendship, not about, you know, love and things like that, but just female friendship, mm-hmm. which I really appreciate. So I'm really looking forward to that. And also, I'm curious if it has the history of how they started their podcast and mm-hmm. things like that. Sounds good. Well, here we are at the end of another episode. We have our interview coming up next with Australian mystery writer Emma Vischeck. Did I say that right? I think it's Kitsch. Viskitsch. Yes. Yeah. I used to we say will... Visic and then so Viskitsch. I'm Yeah. You know, once you have somebody's name in your head, it's so hard to to get it right, but I'm committed. So Well, I'm impressed that you have even her first name because you know me about names. So <laughs> I think you're doing just fine. <laughs> gosh (laughs) enjoy that interview with emma and we look forward to catching up with you again in a couple of weeks hi everyone we're so excited to have with us today emma viskich she is a (laughs) best-selling author of several books chris take it away so yeah so emma we're so excited to have you with us today emma's the author of the caleb zelik series she's an australian mystery writer And I first came upon your novels, Emma, uh, via the Australian Women Writers Challenge that I participate in every year. And that that first year I participated, so many people were talking about Resurrection Bay, your first novel. I was like, I have to get it. So I I ordered it directly from either from a bookseller in Australia or maybe the publisher. Anyway, long story short, welcome, Emma. We're so happy to be talking with you today. Oh, thank you so much uh, for having me. And I'm so glad that you're part of that uh, Readers Challenge. That's that's fantastic. Yeah. Great to get um, yeah, the readers all around the world into Australian writers. That's fantastic. Well, and it's a great thing to read. You can read it directly. It's almost you know, all the books are in English for the most part. And yep. it's a great way to explore another country if you don't know a foreign language in part. And I do have cousins who live in Sydney so it's nice to be able to learn a little bit through fiction about what it's like to live in Australia. Yeah, I think that there's um, there's been a recent interest in Australian books. Uh, until the last few years, maybe, um, maybe five years, we've had a lot of trouble, I think, getting our books out into the world, but there seems to be this growing interest. And I think one of the reasons is exactly what you said, is that it's in the same language. We're a very similar culture but we're just different enough to be interesting. So you, you're, you're getting a different outlook on life, maybe. So, yes, um, yeah, yeah it, it's been really exciting to see this, you know, new, new interest in our work. Absolutely. I was going to say, it was really fun. I just finished Resurrection Bay about an hour ago, <laughs> and I loved it. And it's really fun to, you know, there's little... Um, passages, you know, or, or I guess it's, a, what's the best way to say it? Turns of phrase that are different in Australia, you know, just as if you're reading a book that's British, you know, and I really enjoyed that because I don't, I I haven't read much Australian literature. So that was really fun for me. Oh, that's great to know. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of, um, when I first started writing Resurrection Bay, I actually had a publisher who hadn't read it say to me, oh, don't write um, a crime novel set in Australia. No one wants to read Australian fiction and I had that moment I was I was right at the end of writing it I and I was deeply um deeply involved in the world and I was really attached to Caleb as a character and I had that moment of going oh can I pick it up and put it in another country but I knew I couldn't because 
it is so inherently Australian and it's those turns of phrases and it's that uh, outlook on life and things. So I've been really, um, really happy that people have really liked the, the, the little turns of phrases that are different or in the voice or the attitude. It's, um, it's great. Yeah. And, and a relief. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would have been hard to untangle that and put it in another country, I imagine. Uh, I don't think I could have. Yeah. Uh, not not for that novel, not for Resurrection Bay, mm-hmm. no. Yeah, well, I'm certainly happy that you didn't take that advice. Um, oh, good. <laughs> and so just so reader or listeners know, on the Caleb Zellick series, Caleb is an investigator who is deaf. And so his investigations have a really unique perspective and spin on it. And we were wondering, how did you come up with this character and... Why was his deafness um, an important factor for you? It was quite a long process. Um, I didn't actually start out to write a deaf character. Um, in fact, I, I tried not to write a deaf character. <laughs> it was, I, I, had, um, I think um, there's two ways of looking at it. Um, in one way, his character or, or the seeds of his character have been bubbling away since I was about 10. Uh, and I went to school with a profoundly deaf girl. And it was about that age that you're really, you start to become aware that people have very different lives from you. And, you you, you know, you go to a friend's house and you go, oh, wow, they, they call things different names or they've, they've got a grandma living with them. And, and it just was one of those ages where I, I just went, I was just fascinated by the difference in her way of, of um, coming into the world and my way of coming into the world. And, she, in, and aspects of her character have come into my writing ever since then. I've been writing since I was like four or five, ever since I could read. Uh, and about that time, I wrote a short story with a man who was blind in it. As a young teenager, I wrote uh, a, a book um, with uh, a girl who was invisible. Uh, there was a later one with someone who uh, couldn't speak. So it's been in my writing the whole time. But I, I actually only realised this a couple of years ago. So when his character, when Caleb's character first came to me, it was just one of those, uh, to me, bolts from the blue. Oh, this idea just dropped into my head that I've got an investigator and he is deaf. Um, and I really liked the idea because I thought it put a great twist on the really standard character of a straight white male investigator and took this really e- invincible character and made him quite vulnerable. And I really like twisting things and making um, things the opposite of what you might expect. So his partner, Frankie, is a woman and you expect her to be the kind and caring one, but actually she's quite spiky. And Caleb is actually quite vulnerable and sensitive. He puts up a, a very uh, brusque male front, but you know if you're reading it that he's he's quite a, a sensitive character as well. So I had this idea for his character. I started writing the book and and then I thought, I can't do it. It's just too hard. It's too hard technically. My first career is a, as a classical clarinet player. So like my whole world has been sound. So I thought I can't do that. And then there's the whole issue of writing from outside your own experiences um, and cultural appropriation. So I put the manuscript aside for six months, probably probably even more than six months. And I just thought, no, I won't do it. But when an idea gets hold, <laughs> you know, you just can't let it go. It's just that. And, and I'd find myself uh, at work or driving or walking and I'd think, how would Caleb 
respond in the situation? How would he order coffee? Would he use sign language? Could he um, lip read? Um, so then I started really writing and, and went down the absolute rabbit hole of, um, of research and immersing myself in the deaf world. And that is the actual short version of how I came to write Caleb's <laughs> story. <laughs> also add in there is that I, I thought most of the inspiration for his character came from that girl I told you about who I went to school with, but it was actually only recently um, when someone actually pointed out to me that perhaps it had more to do with my grandparents who didn't speak English. Hmm. And they were Croatian immigrants um, and they lived with me for a period of time as well with my family and um, very common story with families in um, Australia at the time. I wasn't raised to speak Croatian so we couldn't communicate at all like single words um, and I dismissed this idea when it was raised to me at first but ever since then I've been thinking more and more and going that communication has been a constant theme and isolation and outsiders has been a constant theme ever since I was a child so I think his character has been there probably since I was like four or five really oh, in some wow. way. Yeah. And wow. did you know that you wanted to write mystery or was that also a surprise to you? Um, so I've always read everything. Uh, I was sort of given free range to my parents' bookshelf when I was about 10 and read wildly inappropriate books um, <laughs> and some great books as well. So, it, it, you know, in amongst the, the Dickens and the Austen, there'd be Ian Fleming and, and John Nakare and Agatha Christie and uh, it was all a mix. So I've always written in any style that I was reading. So if I was reading Greek myths, I'd be writing it. This is as a child. Uh, and when I first sat down to write a novel as an adult, it was, I finished the first draft and I read over it and it was terrible because it wasn't anything. It wasn't any style. Nothing happened. It was just people talking to each other. Uh, and the few things that worked in it were the uh, little bit of tension, a little bit of mystery elements in it. So then I wrote another manuscript. Um, they're my burn upon my death manuscripts. So I will never be published. I will never be shown to anyone. <laughs> that was a little bit more of a mystery novel, but still not anything quite. And then I got uh, a few scenes from Resurrection Bay were in my brain and I went, oh, okay, I'm going to write a mystery novel. This is what I'm going to do. So when I sat down to write Resurrection Bay, I absolutely knew it was going to be a mystery novel. So Chris has had the luxury of reading the second book in the series. I haven't done that yet. And Chris, did you read the third book as yes, well? Yes, I did. I, I have no patience in waiting for the next book in the series. So I order them right from Australia as soon as they're available <laughs> there. Um, so I did I read <laughs> Resurrection Bay was the first and Fire Came Down was the second. And then the latest is Darkness for Light. And I'm kind of bummed. I know that um, Darkness for Light was supposed to come out in the U.S. in June. And you said um, on Twitter, I saw that it's going to be postponed into 2021. Yeah, they've had real problems with the warehouse uh, because of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, you just They just can't get the books to the US uh, and Canada. So they do have to postpone uh, until the beginning of next year. Although I, I have discovered that you can order it from the UK so and Australia as well. So some, some people I know are doing getting the books straight from the UK. Um, but yeah, no, it's like many, many writers at the moment, there's, there's a real pause. 
yeah, uh, for right. me. And, and yeah, just so many bookshops and writers uh, are just in that moment of, well, we'll see what happens, but it's, it's not, it's not life quite as normal yet. Right. Yeah. Right. But the books right. are available. So people are free, yeah, to, they get it. free yep. to definitely order yep. them. And I yep. know that you're, it's going to have a great splash in 2021 here in the U S and we'll, we'd love to have you back then to, to help promote it as well. But in the meantime, I just wanted to ask a little bit about Caleb because he is his own worst enemy quite often. He's a bit stubborn. Um, he's resistant to doing things. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that aspect. And if you've heard from folks in the deaf community responding to him as a character and either relating to that or questioning uh, your having that stubborn side of him. Hmm. I, yeah, it's, he is incredibly stubborn. Um, and he's definitely been called his own worst enemy by uh, readers and and people in his life. <laughs> uh, um, I think uh, one of the things I really like in reading and writing is when the plot is absolutely tied to the character and the character's actions and reactions to things. Um, so I, I, I knew right from the start with Caleb that the things would happen to him, but the bigger part of the plot would be tied to how he reacted, either on a small level in that, um, and he, de- he definitely changes through through the books, but we, we when we first meet him in Resurrection Bay, he's absolutely determined um, to live in the hearing world and to, as his uh, ex-wife uh, accuses him, to pass as normal. So he is very reticent in letting people know he's deaf because not because he is ashamed, but because of people's reactions. He doesn't want pity. He doesn't want aggression. He doesn't want embarrassment. So he shuts that down. And and you see that change a little bit in the books. I first started writing him like that because of my own experiences in doing research. So when I first started writing, I, I did an online lip reading course to, to begin and I thought I was eating a bit and I was very clever and I could do it and um, so I put little foam earbuds in my ears and I went out to catch public transport and do the shopping and um, just be in the world and I ended up with extremely strange coffee orders uh, one of which ended <laughs> in Resurrection Bay yes. uh, I, I, I missed trains I got confused in shops and my own response to people's reactions was to absolutely shut things down like uh, I just um, I got that real um, beginnings of a flash of anger or embarrassment and I thought Caleb is a person who would just take that to extremes he would be so stubborn with that so whereas maybe someone like me would would explain eventually what was happening he would go no no um, you also got the relationship with his father who has brought him up to uh, conquer all and is is perhaps um, was worried or ashamed of having a child who wasn't the perfect son he expected. So I think most of Caleb's stubbornness comes from trying to prove himself. So his stubbornness has been a boon to me as a writer because at any stage in the manuscript where a sensible person would perhaps back away or do something uh, a little uh, less brave, I absolutely know Caleb will genuinely take the hardest option. Mm. So that makes my life very easy. Um, (laughs) In terms of the deaf community, it's been really interesting. I was very nervous uh, about 
uh, hurting anybody or mis misrepresenting people. And, and, of course, you're not talking about one community but multiple communities. And I very much set out for Caleb not to be a representative of anyone. He is his own person. Um, and he is also a small d deaf person in that he's not culturally part of the deaf community, the cultural um, side of that things. Although in Darkness for Light, we do see that side of his life. So when I first started getting emails and people who were deaf and hard of hearing, I was, I was opening them with some trepidation. But I've had just wonderful, delightful feedback. And I'm sure I will get negative feedback at some stage because if you put something out into the world, you do. Mm -hmm. And if you're writing outside your own experience, you have to be um, able to accept that as well. But it's been 100% positive. And, and people seem really happy and delighted to be able to have representation in books that they want to read that they haven't seen previously. Uh, and, and I think the other side of that coin is for me to make sure I'm not taking up any space from writers who are deaf. So um, I don't speak on their behalf and I do mentoring for people with disabilities and things who, who want to be writers. So it's it's about me sort of just stepping away and helping other people as well. But it's, 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 an, it's a very fine line to walk, I think, um, as a writer. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I love the way you represent, Kayla, because, you know, I've, I read a lot of mystery and there's, you know, most investigators have some kind of quirk. And with some writers, it gets a little tedious sometimes. But with Caleb his personality and his particular disability, it seems so inherent to the book as a whole. You know, it never pulls right. me out of the reading experience. It just draws me deeper and deeper in. And I, I've come to really love him as a character and be frustrated with him as if he were a real friend. Um, and you want to shake him sometimes. <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> And, and the people around him, I mean, I happen to date someone that's profoundly deaf in one ear. So he wears a hearing aid in one ear and then his other ear is not, you know, great, but he doesn't have a hearing aid in that ear yet. And there were scenes in the book where the people around Caleb were really frustrated with how he's behaving and how he chooses, you know, sometimes to not you know, just say to someone, I need you to speak up or look at me or, you know, I can't hear what you're saying. And I have that, you know, frustration myself sometimes. And also sometimes I feel bad because I feel like they do miss things, you know, and that's a sadness that I have for him. And I felt that with Caleb sometimes like, oh, you're not, you're, you're not getting the whole story here. You know? <laughs> Excellent. I'm glad to hear that. It was one of one of the interesting um, things when I first started writing the series was to decide how much information to give the reader. Mm. Um, and so I decided that the reader would only have the information that Caleb has access to. But you might see things differently from him. Mm. So hopefully there are times when you're going, oh, Caleb, no, can't you <laughs> yes. see that they are doing something? Uh, he has the same information, but he's a different person from you and perhaps uh, got a few more blinkers on. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So I do really love playing around with that side of, of going, well, um, what what will the reader infer? And everyone gets, whoever is reading gets something different from a book, obviously. But right. what will, what can I put out there that the reader will know um, or assume that they know? Because sometimes I like to throw in, you know, red herrings. Mm -hmm. um, 
and what will Caleb get out of the same scene? It's, uh, that's great fun as a writer. Yeah. So are, is, is there going to be more or is it just a trilogy? No, it's, it's, it's a quartet. I'm writing the fourth one now. Uh, I, I set out to write a short series. I wasn't sure how long, but I knew it couldn't be endless because events have reactions and I wanted the characters to grow and change. So it couldn't be endless. Uh, and I was really torn between three or five and three wasn't enough because I needed, there's another character I need to do a story on in, in book four. And then my, and, but five seemed too many. And it wasn't until my publisher said, you know, you could write an even number. <laughs> <laughs> blew my brain I was like, <laughs> <laughs> so I realized a couple of years ago it will be four books so I'm writing that one now oh, okay. um, and that will be out in Australia next year late next year um, okay. <laughs> you know I will, I will. Uh, and then and then um, I'll probably write a standalone but I, I also think I can imagine coming back to his world as well mm-hmm. um I think it'll be quite hard for me to leave it because uh, I'm I'm very immersed in um, his world and um, I'm in his brain. He's in my brain. One of those things. Both yeah. of those things. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's just so, yeah. he's such a great character. And then his ex-wife, um, who is part of the Aboriginal community, um, can you talk a little bit about that side of the story uh, of the series? I should say. Yeah. So so Cat is Aboriginal, or, or Corey is the local term so I'm not Aboriginal but I've got a lot of family who who are so one of the things I very much do in my writing is write the world around me I was quite surprised when Resurrection Bay came out and people kept talking about the diversity of the characters in that they're from all different backgrounds but that's Melbourne where I'm from Mm. and and as I say I have family so I was very drawn to having some Aboriginal characters Again, that's a little fraught um, because you've got uh, identity and growing up, but I very much thought I could write it exactly as Caleb's character um, in that I am a privileged outsider in this world, in that I I have privilege to see um, what the communities are like, but I'm not quite a part of it. But I'm a part of it, but not a part of it. And Caleb is exactly the same. One of the other reasons I... Cat is Kuri is a, it's such a good balance to Caleb's deafness because both the deaf and Indigenous um, populations have had very experience, very similar experiences in Australia and around the world, in that they've been denied their language, their culture, they've been treated literally as second-class citizens or lesser than citizens. So it had that really great balance of them both. But the difference is the way they see themselves in that cat is very strong and proud and has a very strong family and community around her. So she's very comfortable moving between both the black and white worlds, whereas Caleb is between the hearing and the deaf worlds and he's part of neither of them. Mm. Um, So I, I like sort of showing and playing with those two aspects of things as well. And it also made absolute sense for his character that he would be with someone like Cat who is both not part of the mainstream but very happy to move through it or not be part of it. So her character developed sort of slowly from those building blocks. I really appreciate that. And do you have a hard time as a writer putting these characters through hellish situations and (laughs) emotional turmoil? Like, what is that like as a writer? And I know some people say that's a ridiculous question to ask because these are made up characters but when you do 
when you're so close with them. What is that like for you? Yeah, I, I think I'm a very bad person. Um, <laughs> I actually don't think it's a ridiculous uh, question because if you are really writing, if you're writing empathically and if you are feeling and going through the emotions of the characters, and I know not everybody writes like that. Some people like to keep a, a bit of a, a distance and be a little bit analytical about it, but I'm, I'm very immersive when I write. So I'm very much feeling what the characters are feeling. And so there are moments where I go, oh, I shouldn't do that. But that makes for a very boring book. And in the end, I am a cruel person who will put my characters through anything I need to put them through in order to make it interesting. Book. <laughs> so I, I do it, yeah. I do it with no seconds. I mean, I, I look, I, I feel bad about it, but I'm definitely not <laughs> Well, I, I feel bad about the characters in your standalone novel. I have a feeling they might be... <laughs> going through a lot some of them won't make it (laughs) I say nothing (laughs) so Emma you say that you are working on the fourth book are you having trouble writing right now or are you able to really dig in and and concentrate yeah that's actually a really interesting question because there's been a lot of talk with all my writer friends about what are you writing? Can you write? How can you go through something like this and not write? Um, and certainly at the beginning of the pandemic, I had this moment of, of a few weeks where I just couldn't write. And I can always write. I, not well. I mean, I, I, I have weeks where I'm just moving shapes around on the page, but I can always sit down and work. Uh, and again, that's part of my background as a musician. You just get up and you do the practice. It's, it's often not good you do it and so I had a couple of weeks where I just my brain was doing that you know round and round and round and round and I couldn't settle and I realized that uh, not only do I have a deadline that I have to actually meet (laughs) but that I was absolutely miserable and and quite panicky without my writing even aside from whatever else is happening in the world it made me realize how much I get out of the writing experience even when it's going badly, I very much drop into the world and I come out the other side and go, oh, right, okay, you know, 10 minutes has passed or, or four hours has passed or some period of time I've been in that world. Uh, so I I went back to walking. I've got a studio a few days a week and I usually ride there and it's about an hour or an hour and a quarter to walk and I thought I'll just start walking there. And so I started walking there and that made all the difference. I just was able to just settle the ideas started flowing. I started writing again um, and I've been so grateful for it because uh, it's um, it really does do something to your brain, just makes you, uh, yeah, really, really stop worrying about the things that you're worrying about, like a global pandemic. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know we're, we're getting short on time, I think. We don't want to take up uh, too much of your time today. But I was curious about if you are getting, you know, you're getting readers from different parts of the world. Do you get different feedback from different parts of the world? Have you noticed any type of trend on on that? Yeah, only only one. It's been fascinating, uh, and that's the swearing. Oh, you're 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 very modest with your language in America. <laughs> <laughs> Not every bear, one there appreciates uh, the swears, I've got to say. Uh, I don't get much feedback on that, but it definitely happens. Wow, that's <laughs> uh, Yeah, I've never had anyone 
from Australia comment on the swearing. That's that's definitely for sure uh, because the, the characters speak naturally. Mm-hmm. So some characters swear, some don't, and some swear more than others and use different uh, – and I, I wrote that without even thinking about it because I write dialogue as one of my – favorite things to do is just write how people speak so that that was that actually amuses me because I I have a absolutely foul mouth and I'm very sorry <laughs> well we do too we do too it's it, amazing it to me because I didn't even really realize there was swearing in the book no, no. <laughs> that, 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 that's absolutely right so, so. If you use it yourself or people around you, you just it's just how that character is speaking. But obviously for some people, they don't and maybe their communities don't and they, they notice it. Wow. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. Now, you well, were in the, the U.S. last year. You had yeah. a tour with some other mystery writers. What was that like for you? It was fantastic. So uh, it was with Jock Sarong, Solari, Gentle and Robert Gott. And we banded together, we're all from different publishers. It was Solari's idea. Um, she said, I think we can get together and we might be able to get some funding from the government to help us get there. And we all said, sure, Solari, that's definitely not going to happen, but we, we'll go along with it. But anyway, we, we did, we wrote some grant applications and we got um, money to come over and um, we, we also contributed our own money as well, but it made all the difference because we are a long way away from you. So we were there for three weeks and we, we went to Bouchcom, we had a panel at Bouchcom, we went to New York and uh, California, toured different bookshops, gave talks and um, it was fantastic. People were so welcoming, uh, just so enthusiastic, so open arms welcoming. Um, it was just delightful. And so we were, we were promoting our own books, obviously, but just talking about Australian crime fiction, mystery writing in general. And there was so much interest. It was great. I, I think um, I, I'm really hoping it's going to be a start of something regular, whether it's with us or with other writers. But but now we've proven that it can be done and be successful. Uh, I'm hoping there'll be some more support from the arts councils for it. Definitely success, yeah. So are we. Yeah, yeah, we're hopeful too because we'd love to read certainly more from you and more from other Australian mystery writers and writers in general. It would be wonderful. Yeah, well, cross fingers. Emma, I have one last burning question, and that is when I was reading the book, listeners know that I love food and I love to read about food and other cultures, and you wrote about a salad sandwich and I have to know what a salad sandwich is. It's literally what it sounds like. <laughs> oh, isn't that funny? That's that's uh, must be just one of those terminologies that I didn't realise wasn't universal. So uh, you just get things like lettuce. It's often quite uh, daggy. Oh, you probably don't know what daggy is. It's uh, it's it's quite down market. Uh, like you get like something really boring like iceberg lettuce. So you're not having rocket or arugula or something like that. So you, something like that, maybe some grated carrot, maybe some beetroot. Uh, you just And it's just in two pieces of bread, a bit of butter wow. or margarine on it. Yeah, it's very, it's very simple. Oh. I don't even, who okay. eats salad sandwich? I don't even remember that. Um, it's when they're in a cafe. Oh, I think it's okay. when they're Frank in the cafe Frank. when they're getting, when I think it's the cafe when, when Caleb orders coffee the wrong way because yes, he's not okay. really communicating well and then I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the scene and I was like a salad sandwich because we often eat salad with a piece of bread or a roll with it 
But I thought, you know, it must just be a salad and a sandwich. But, yeah. Oh, that's it so literally funny. is. It literally is. <laughs> not a pasta salad. A green salad. A green okay. salad. So like a meatless sandwich. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Although people often put ham or chicken in it. Okay. Okay. All right. See these cultural differences. Totally. <laughs> so if you wanted to order a salad sandwich with meat in it, would it have a different name or do you say with meat? We're very literal. We say with meat. <laughs> in fact, often when I order one, they'll say, want a bit of chicken in it? <laughs> no, I'd ask for that. Yeah. Well, well that now we're set, Chris. I know. We need to have a book cougars tour of Australia. Oh, I would love that. That would be so good. Good uh, Our food is usually a bit better than a salad sandwich in Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Victorian Tourism Billboard. <laughs> Oh gosh. Well, we're so glad we could arrange this. The time difference is vast and you're up early to talk with us and Chris and I are preparing to go to bed, but <laughs> we worked it all out and it's so nice that you took the time to speak with us. Thank oh, you. Oh, thank yeah. you so much for having me. It's been delightful. Thanks, Emma. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media or on our Goodreads group. And if you'd like to contact us directly, email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>